Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Man City liked their statues, of course, but there was a moment late in the first half of their game against Aston Villa yesterday when I thought they'd completely lost the run of themselves. Instead of waiting until after Fernandinho had played his last game, I became convinced that they'd actually decided to unveil his statue at the centre of their defence in a game they had to win to win the Premier League title. Fernandinho might not have gotten the send-off he uh, wanted 100%, but we certainly got the send-off we were hoping for. An exceptional last day of the English Premier League season. Welcome to today's Second Hampton Football Show. Hello there, Ken. Hello there, Kieran. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. What a day of association football uh, that was. Uh, City are champions after three goals between the 76th and 81st minute, having been 2-0 down to Aston Villa. At that stage, Liverpool were still drawing it home to Wolves. And I think, Ken, it's actually hard to overstate just how crazy that last half hour was. It's absolutely insane that both of these amazing, unbelievable teams... Uh, spent so long yesterday failing to win games they absolutely had to win at their home stadiums. It was ridiculous. Well, particularly the the situation with the, in the City game when Coutinho scored two, the 2-0. Two you know, and we'd, we'd been yeah. talking just um, just recently about how, how, how City hadn't come back from 2-0 um, mm. under Guardiola. This is something they had never done. And then they pulled it out in, in the next eight. I mean, Coutinho scored, and I think 12 minutes later it was 3-2. <laughs> so <laughs> it happened pretty quickly, but there was still time. I mean, in in the in the interim between the goal going in or the continue goal, and then the the first Gundogan goal, um, there was one of the most exhausted shots from Kevin De Bruyne. You're like, this is just not going to mm. happen. It's not going to yeah. happen. You know, all of the all of the stars have have aligned against City. You know, everything that's been kind of. Uh, you know, even the even the weird storm clouds over the stadium, everything just has this. This just this kind of doom is upon you. You know, uh, when when Emiliano Martinez uh, had to go off, or, or rather didn't have to go off, was was ruled out at the last minute. I mean, he's you know he's one of Villa's big characters, certainly um, an important player for them, uh, and he's ruled out with an injury. 
uh, in like the last couple of minutes of the training session, according to Stephen Gerrard. Um, and they have to bring in a debutante, Robin Olsen. And you're looking at this going... He didn't stare at all that confidently, you'd have to say. Well, <laughs> it was like, well, whoa, should, I, should I be going over there? Or, do you want me to come for that? Or yeah, It was amazing. <laughs> Just the total indecision. Indecision. Thy name is Olsen. You can't spell the word indecision without many of the letters in Olsen. And this well, guy... There is an E there as well, yeah. But then no, I... You're th- right. Then I was thinking, you know, Robin Olsen, unbelievably, is the guy that Roma signed to replace Allison when they sold him to Liverpool. Now, it didn't work out. Uh, yeah. it, it, it went very badly. Uh, and since then, he's been bouncing around different clubs on loan. But Aston Villa, the finest hour in the history of Aston Villa Football Club, the 1982 European Cup final. What was the memorable, event, unusual event that occurred early in late, that game? Late goalkeeping change. Did he come on as a sub, did he? Early goalkeeping Nigel substitution. Spink. Jimmy Rimmer off. Nigel Spink on. Saves everything. Wow. What I'm saying is that heroic reserve goalkeeper performances are in Aston Villa's DNA. You know, <laughs> in, the, in the sense that we speak about this in football. And so yeah. that's happening. You know, all these former Liverpool players. Coutinho scores this unbelievable goal. Uh, it was, <laughs> this is actually happening. Yeah, it was the most unbelievable. It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. We live Miguel Delaney. Jonathan Wilson on the show in just a short while. We still have a massive week of Champions League final build-up coming up this week as well, of course. Uh, and there's US Murph, preview of all four provincial football finals, lots more besides. So why not think about signing up uh, with us for €5 Euro a month plus fat? If you go to secondhappens.com forward slash join, you'll get all the information you need. Uh, sorry, Ken, I kind of interrupted you mid-flow, but I just wanted to get just a little bit of housekeeping out of the way before we get to your end-of-season report on sport. Report on season. Report on well, report on season. I didn't want to put that pressure on you, Ken. You know, okay. uh, if you like, a lot of the the lessons we learned on the last day of the season reflect back on the entire season as a whole. So you don't need to wrap it all up in a neat little bow for us here. Yeah. Uh, but bloody hell, football, Ken. Bloody football, hell, bloody hell. And there's only one place we're going to start on this 23rd of May, 2022, and that is the Pacific Island of Saipan. <laughs> there's really, only, Ken? There's only one really? story in the football world today, and that's that. Saipan, the 20 year anniversary. Well, I remember that terrible day mm. when our blood stained the sand and the water. <laughs> uh, so Walsic Matilda? The band played Walsic Matilda? Actually, that, that, just... yeah, that is, um, that's, uh, that's a song about Gallipoli, not Saipan. Uh, but it wasn't yeah. far off, Murph. You know, for those of us that were there, and I wasn't. Mm. Uh, you know, truly, this was the drama of our lives. Um, and to think of Roy Keane now, uh, you know, on the TV coverage yesterday, and there wasn't even a mention of Saipan. Uh, tell us, Murph, where do you stand on it all? Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, he probably should have just played, you know. Yeah, he Come played. on. He should have just played. He clearly should have played. No, we're not. We're not actually going to talk about Saipan here. Well, thank Christ for that, Ken. You, you think it's exhausting? <laughs> I think I speak. I think I speak for the entire listenership when I say, "Well, no, it's not that it's been exhausted. It's just I feel like there are more pressing concerns today of all days." It is really know? that the anniversary has happened. Uh, yeah, has happened today when there's so many another, other things to talk another about. Another chance for us to talk about Saipan just blows away in the wind, Ken. Mm, oh, well, I'm sure we'll be able to make time for it. Some later date. But let's talk about Man City and uh, their Premier League title. Pep Guardiola has now won four Premier League titles. Four in five seasons. So a degree of dominance that really has not been matched in the Premier Well, it hasn't been matched in the Premier League era by anyone other than 
um, Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. Although I think on a couple of occasions previously it's been done. But certainly in recent seasons, you can say, yeah, we are we now live under a, a big blue Man City sky. Uh, Pep comparing it to serving to win a Grand Slam. Although the difference when you're serving to win a Grand Slam is that you can't be carried uh, over the line by your by your subordinates <laughs> which is what happened to <laughs> Pep Guardiola it was shaking like a leaf and had had as far as i could see he was the he was the most nervous man in manchester like he even his program notes were kind of weird like it was you know it, it was like uh, dear friends there is just one thing we are not allowed to do this afternoon. We must not fail to enjoy this moment. We will regret it forever if we are not here as one. We want to listen to your breath, your passion, your laughs. From before the kickoff until the end, every second moment, action, dribble, save, pass, goal. I want to feel you, alive, not stop. We want loud, loud and loud, right? And it uh, went on like this. It, and it, There was paragraphs, whole paragraphs, which were in capitals, you know? <laughs> and it was like, oh, wow. And, yeah, and he was good. promising, it's not just us on the pitch. It's all of us on the pitch. All of us on the pitch together, which I suppose did come true in yeah, the end. He manifested that. Yeah. He, ma- he, did, he did manifest that. Um, but it was just that sort of extremely manic edge. I thought maybe one of the good decisions Pep made during the week was giving his players three days off rather than having them in. Okay, lads. <laughs> You know, we're gonna, we are gonna intensively prepare for this game. Um, We've been sailing blind all season. Now to get down and do some real homework. Get down and do some real work. It's time for us to spend some time together. No, uh, you know, he he kind of uh, he said, all right, you know, go and have a party for Fernandinho. It was going to be Fernandinho's last game, so we're gonna have a going away party for him. You can have a beer, you know, not too many beers, but uh, this was the approach that he took to get them in the right frame of mind. Then he picked the wrong team. You know, he picked he picked Fernandinho. Like I mean, you mentioned the the you know the statue element and and the send off. I mean, he could literally have been sent off for you know. Mm. It, and the only reason that he wasn't was that the ball was or Ollie Watkins didn't was nowhere near the ball, which just underlined the insanity of what of what Fernandinho was doing. You know, to to drag down. Um, a, an opposing player when you're in like a last man position, but the guy doesn't have the ball. He's he's actually nowhere near it, and that's the only reason that the that the VAR didn't go back and send Fernandinho off in the first half. You know what I mean? That's that is what could have happened there if the ball had been a couple of meters closer to mm. Watkins, because this is a denial of a goal scoring opportunity. But since it's not a denial of a goal scoring opportunity, they don't go back because they don't. The VAR doesn't go back to award a free kick outside the box. And it can't be a goal-scoring opportunity if Watkins doesn't have the ball. So it's in the, it's it's one of those that sort of falls between the cracks a bit. But it was just mm. such a crazy thing for him to do. What was he doing in the middle of Man City's defense uh, for this game? It's just it's, it's incredible that, that Guardiola did that. I mean, he changed it at halftime, uh, and I thought they looked a bit more secure. I mean, Watkins still was getting through. Watkins wasted a lot of chances in the game. You know, mm. it was just one of those. The the one that looked offside and then. It, yeah, on replay, you realise he actually started his run from inside his own half. Yeah. I mean, that is such a huge chance. Like, it's a massive chance. Yeah, really. You know, and, and, and it wasn't the first time that he'd sort of been through. I mean, you know, it, it, the, the touch was sort of letting him down or he was just getting the touches too close to the defenders and the goalkeepers. But it, it wasn't like a particularly... Uh, 
complicated route to goal for Aston Villa. So they just like booted up in the air oh, and yeah. wait for a Man City centre centre half to make a horrendous decision Terrible underneath mistake. the ball, and then <laughs> and then have Ollie Watkins on hand. Well, that that was what happened. That was that was when Watkins got through. You know, I mean, he he sort of got through a couple of times against Fernandinho. Once Fernandinho pulled him down, although the ball was already that was a back pass, wasn't it? But Fernandinho, the second time Fernandinho kind of got caught under the ball. And you're thinking this is like such a weak link. How can he? Anyway, he he changed that. I mean, that was. I thought that the defense looked like, you know, looked mistaken. You know, why are you putting stones on the right? Like, he's obviously the guy you should have in the middle. Um, uh, you've got fullbacks. You know, you've got Sinchenko. He's on the bench. Uh, okay, so he changed all this. He fixed this at halftime. That was the problem uh, I had diagnosed. Don Diego Torres also uh, watching the game um, and diagnosing errors from Guardiola in the selection. Although his one's... The, the errors he diagnosed surprised me. Uh, Riyad Mahrez and Kevin De Bruyne were the two players he... Mm. he, he, he I, was gonna, I was going to say, Kevin, did he say Kevin De Bruyne shouldn't have started? Of course uh, he said Kevin, he's like a dog with a bone with De Bruyne. Or his his his, his crusade against De Bruyne. Uh, De Bruyne wandered the pitch ruefully, waiting for someone to give him a ball to showcase his straight line running and beautiful striking. <laughs> like... Like De Bruyne was like this, this like player that you know some ingenious craftsman in Flanders had made had carved out of wood. Like who just wasn't very good at like a, the sort of sinuous uh, you know mm. kind of element of the game where you sort of turn and spin, but like you know wind him up and and you know he's like a, he's like a foosball uh, player basically. G- give him a ball, you know, like if, and, if you yeah, yeah if you can just maneuver him into position like a like an ancient siege gun. He might be able to blast one into the top corner yeah. for you, but give him give him a ball and, and ten yards of grass in a straight line, like a runway, and you know watch him <laughs> watch him go. Then I mean, this is a game that De Bruyne De Bruyne was the guy who who supplied the decisive burst of the game in in the in, in you know this eighty first minute. The third goal was mm. De Bruyne got to a ball that three Villa players were closer than him to, right? Closer than yeah. him to the you know when when Mings kind of. Mings is, is kind of oh, half clears. It's not even really clears. It kind of it's knocks it out. Touch, it's, really, yeah. is it, was, was he trying to control it? I mean, there was a player. It looked like it. It looked like a, uh, an attempt at controlling the ball, much more so than it looked like an attempt at a clearance. But maybe in his own head, he wasn't sure what what exactly he was trying to do in that moment. Well, I suppose De Bruyne did tear towards that ball in a straight line, you know. Um, mm. and, and then, he, although then he sort of swerved a bit to the right, and then he hammered the ball across. And, Listen, uh, I just think Diego Torres has got this one wrong. He's you got know, a I respect a, him a lot. I respect Diego Torres. I respect his sources. I respect his uh, journalist journalistic uh, rigor. Uh, but I think he's got this you one wrong. You disagree with him about Kevin De Bruyne? I do. I Re- I, I, I disagree. Riyad Mahrez slows the game down a bit too much. Um, apparently, you know, City needs to play fast. And, you know, maybe there's a there's a there's an argument for that. I mean, what happened in the second half? Um, like Zinchenko coming in balanced the defense again. I thought, you know, um, and he actually he, personally he played, played really, really well. well yeah. yeah, he played really well. Um, some some great sort of dribbles, some good little passes. Set up the second goal, obviously for Rodri, who had his usual uh, excellent game. Gunian, as Guardiola was saying afterwards, you know, times his runs better than anybody else. I mean, he's the guy who's turning up, arriving onto these um, crosses, uh, and Sterling who. Gave them a bit of penetration, which uh, I guess Diego Torres reckoned Mars wasn't really 
Mm. Was really doing. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Guardiola may, he may have picked the wrong team, but he also made three extremely impactful substitutions. Yeah, so, but I it's mean, it's, you know. it's it's kind of like stepping on a rake, isn't it? But like in a good way, you know. You, you turn around to the city bench, like he could, he could clap his hand over his face so he couldn't see anything, and just point randomly at the city bench and bring on someone who would who would do something good. On you know what I mean? Like it's there was a lot of good players on that bench. I mean, Villa were bringing on marvelous Nakamba and Ashley Young. You still have to give him the bare minimum amount of credit for that, though. Yeah. I mean, he, he, but, but I, I mean Fernandinho, I mean, he could have taken Fernandinho off after 35 minutes, sure. Yeah. But, like, it did have to happen, and it happened, and there was no, you know, this is his last I game. know, I know, but it's yeah. the, it's the tragedy. It, it is the tragedy of, of Pep at Man City that, that, you know, the fact that, like, he does have, you know, by mile the, the most resources. It does mean people tend to give credit to the resources a lot of the time when he would obviously rather they paid attention to, you know, what uh, has been achieved by him and the players at a, at a sort of human level. I mean, Villa's best player of the last 30 years, I'll say 25 years, uh, was uh, sitting on the Man City bench, just, you know, just not not being used um, because they didn't need him. You know, he's the most expensive player in the history of the Premier League. He didn't start in the decisive game. You know, they, they left him out of the Champions League matches. Um uh, most of the Champions League matches, and you know he, uh, he, uh, I mean he wasn't there. He 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 wasn't he wasn't there. So afterwards, uh, Jack Grealish uh, scooched up his shorts and wandered over to where the Sky team were on the pitch and proceeded to give a really interesting interview, which we we'll play a little yeah. bit of here. Yeah. Now, p- please ignore Michael Richards' attempt to derail this whole thing while, while Grealish is literally in the middle of of giving this very interesting answer. Uh, or a description of his struggle to sort of click with Pep, and you know, ha- and how he's been trying to, you know, the, you know what what he's kind of felt this season as he's been sort of struggling to make himself relevant to the to the Villa team. So just, you know, Greedish gets back on track here, um, manfully ignoring uh, Richards's banter. Is honestly, he's a genius. Like uh, football wise, he's he's unbelievable. Um, Honestly, I could, I'd love, I say to people all the time, I'd love for you to just come in and just watch, like, you know, one of his team talks before the game, just to see, like, what he does for every player. Um, he's unbelievable. Uh, and, you know, just working with him day to day on the training, on the training pitch. Sometimes, I think, for myself this season, I, you know, I don't get, like, nervous or anything with fans or stuff like that because I think people have seen what I can do. But he actually makes me nervous sometimes, I swear. And I feel like sometimes I've had to impress him too much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, now, like Mick said, you know, I've got my first season out of the way and, uh, you know, I've got, the, I've got the medal here. So hopefully, hopefully many more. What is it the level of detail? Yeah, there's so much. It's, for me, I just, I, at times, you know, I, like I watch all my games, you know, and I listen to... to Gary and people yeah, he's coming. Yeah, he's been slagging you up all season, oh, no, by the way. Yeah. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. I'm saying he's getting at the back post. <laughs> oh, you want to be no, nice to you? You want to be nice to you My dad says that to me every, my dad says that to me every <laughs> game. But, you know, even times like where people have said, oh, I want Jack to attack more at Villa. And I feel like sometimes, because Pep don't want you to lose the ball, I'm so, in my head, I'm thinking, I can't lose this ball. Do you know what I mean? Where I feel like, all right, I've got to you play too, You think you play too safe at yeah, times? Yeah, at times. And then, for example, in the second half last week against West Ham, I felt like, once I scored, I was like, yeah. come on, give me the ball. And I was running at people trying to create things. And you know, I even spoke to people after the game, like, like close to me, my dad and stuff. And I, I was like, I felt like myself. And you know, like playing today. And hopefully, you know, I can, I can bring that obviously next season. Yeah, so miraculously, uh, Jack Reeder didn't lose his train of thought there after uh, Michael tried to bring the banter in there. And continue mm-hmm. to talk about how he's been so 
how he's kind of I thought that was so interesting because it was like it's kind of exactly what we've seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? it's, it's, it's it's all like word for word how uh, we would describe Jack Grealish's frame of mind throughout his first season at Man City. Like it's it's you know you've said those words. I mean, he said the word intimidated there, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like like you would be afraid to say that a football like the the most expensive footballer in the history of the Premier League would be intimidated by a manager. Like you would think twice about saying that. About surely situation, surely can't be. Yeah, that can't be true. And yet Grealish comes out and says, like, literally at the mo- at the the moment of like ultimate triumph in the season, and he still comes out and says that. It's like it's it's an unbelievably interesting interview for like that snippet in particular. It's unbelievably interesting. Yeah, he he is good at interviews, Grealish. Like he's he's very open. Like, and sometimes I wonder if he, you know, if he. Um, says more than he should like or he he's not he's not judicious let's say in what he admits <laughs> you know i can imagine there are players yeah. who, who play their cards closer to their chest he just kind of comes out with this stuff and uh and i just thought is you know how his sort of struggle this season has been it's all psychological you know what mm. i mean it really is like it's, it's it's this kind of inhibition this feeling of inhibition or this sort of uncertainty yeah and it, it the way Grealish is talking about it it's that's not coming from pep it's more more so coming from himself this idea that i can't give the ball away i mean indirectly it's coming from pep yeah. but you know but the, the way Grealish is talking about it there it's like I, you know i don't want to give the ball away it's not like i want to try things and i feel like I'll help the team if I, you know, if six times out of ten my defense bidding passes go through and I lose the ball the other four times. Yeah. It's, you know, like I, I feel like that is a human reaction going into a new workplace, uh, previously successful without me workplace, and trying to leave your imprint on it, but also feeling like, okay, I, I can't be the one to screw this, screw this very finely oiled machinery up. Either. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, he said something like... Um, that my first day here was the worst day of my life or something kind of mad like that. Like where he, where he was saying like, you know, but I mean, I, I don't think he meant that literally, but he kind of said something, he was kind of saying, well, it was just very difficult to sort of come in and be like, oh, you know, I've never gone to into a new team before. And uh, it was, it was really, he, he found this kind of difficult. Um, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, I wonder where, where this is going to go. Like, I mean, it's, it's clear that like he, like there was a there was a kind of a strange article in the Times on Friday, which was kind of about Grealish. You know, a lot of people say he's failed. Well, actually, you know, Pep still believes in him. And I was like, oh, really? Does he? You know, I mean, <laughs> that's good. It's good to know because, like, he's he's an obviously brilliant player. You know, who City have kind of failed to integrate so far. And the question is whether whether that's going to change or we're going to, you know, you can't do much. Like he actually ended up in that interview. He thanked Pep at the start for not putting him on (laughs) or rather I should say not thanked him exactly, but paid tribute to him. Well, you know, Mm. I would love to come on, but of course he brought on good again and he did the business. So, uh, you know, this is not really where he wants to be, although he was sort of there, you know, with the, um, with it, with the Premier League medal. I mean, that was another injudicious thing he said. So I know lots of people here are, are desperate to win the Champions League, but for me, the Premier League is the one. Mm. Um, but but also note that he said about Guardiola, football wise, he's unbelievable. Specifying football wise, and it's very very rare that someone will say that at this point in the season, football wise. Mm. Like if you you know, a good example was Pep last year talking about um, the then departing. Sergio Aguero. We love him so much. He's a, he's a special person for all of us. 
You're not having second thoughts, are you, Pep? It's so nice. It's so nice. Is it because of the human being as as well as the footballer? Yeah, he helped me a lot. That's it, it's been the challenge for you. You've had to do it replacing totems of this football club. We Huge cannot. Figures. We cannot replace him. We cannot. Now, I thought, I honestly, I thought about cutting that a bit shorter, but actually I could listen to that clip all day. I could, you know. <laughs> and I, visually, it's just, uh, it's worth chasing down the YouTube clip as well, because visually it He's is, crying as well. It's so He's funny. so nice. I, there was another magnificent example of, of this. And what I'm talking about here is the tendency of football people, football men, to praise each other's human qualities at this point in the season. Mm. Uh, a magnificent example, a couple of magnificent examples from Frank Lampard. On Thursday night, this is to obviously none of the. Oh, it could only be Seamus Coleman. No, 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 this, this, this fella, this, this fella is uh, to say in front of everyone, one of the best, the best people I've ever met, and as a man, as a man, and what you are, and as a player. One of the best, the best people I've ever met, and he Lampard does actually say in there. And player or something like that, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but look, that wasn't that he wasn't finished because James Coleman was then was out on the pitch playing with his kids, you know, having a little run around with, with his kids mm-hmm. when uh, Frank Lampard came out and once again was moved to pay tribute to the Killy Beggs man. It's going to be so <laughs> awkward when, when Coleman deposes him in a palace coup next autumn. <laughs> four, four losses in the first five games. Uh, interim manager Seamus Coleman will uh, speak to the press. <laughs> Frank came yeah. in here and did a great job. You know, but we move on as a club. I, I, I feel like we can, I, I, under my stewardship, I think we can move the club forward. Back yeah. to where we believe this club could be. Yeah, so, uh, so, so the Grealish would say, would say football wise I mean usually at this point you say as a man uh, you know as a man as a human being football wise and maybe you know maybe the human element will come maybe that's what what will happen next season I mean at least next season for Grealish there's going to be a change in focus because Erling Haaland is going to completely dominate um, you would imagine the sort of the attention Everyone is going to be just watching Erling Haaland and saying, "Oh, what's Haaland going to do?" Certainly, in, certainly in the beginning, and uh, for Grealish, uh, yeah, it's just a question of, and, and that's a, that's going to change the way the team functions as well, uh, and you possibly know, possibly to Grealish's benefit. Exactly. So, look again. I don't talk. I just it's just really the interview. I thought was very interesting. So uh, yeah, what else is? I mean, you you mentioned Erling Haaland there. His Bundesliga goal scoring record, of course, absolutely unimpeachable. Again. Mm. Uh, you did make a bold prediction about rampant Dutch goal wizard, the bane of the Bundesliga, yeah. uh, when he arrived at Burnley to replace Chris Wood. I speak, of course, of Wout Weghurst. The one and two man. Averaging a goal every two games with Wolfsburg. Yeah. You said he would get two goals for Burnley this season. <laughs> I, you, you obviously say a lot of things on this show, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> but for some reason, this, this bold prediction, the, the specificity of this prediction... Like, I've become obsessed with it. Every time I see Burnley on matches today, oftentimes without knowing the scoreline of yeah. the Burnley game pl- played earlier that day or whatever, I'm like, is today the day Veghurst rams it down Ken's throat? Ken, mm. how many goals did Vat Veghurst get in this Premier League season? Vat Veghurst, 20 matches, two goals. <sighs> 
So he went from a goal every two games to a goal every ten games. Mm. Uh, to be strictly accurate, he played 16.190s. He didn't play 90 minutes in each of yes. those 20 matches, but two goals and 20 appearances. And the man who is the human incarnation of Burnley Football Club uh, will, I guess, go down to the championship with him. Although Burnley have some big problems now. Um, you know, their financial situation is a disaster uh, as they have, they, they are the, the victims, I suppose I will say, of a leverage buyout. Uh, and now a lot of that debt due to their relegation is, co- is coming due now. Of course, they lost out on the last day to Leeds who went to Brentford and did the business, uh, much to the delight of Coach Marsh. So, so, I told you guys before the game that you're the best group that I've ever worked with, the commitment you have to each other, right? And then we showed the video of these last-minute goals. And a group that shows belief, that never says quit, that runs for each other, that fights for each other, that does everything we can. And that, guys, that is what got us here. Right? It's the character of you guys. Right? I don't stand in front of the fans and hear my name chanted. It's me, it's us. It will always be us, and we can staying in the Premier League, gents. Okay? Ken, I'm going to say, all of these clubs releasing this video footage of their manager is speaking in the dressing room. I don't know, I can't think of many that have actually done that manager a favour. You know? <laughs> How do you I'm, just listening, I'm just listening to that, and I'm like, oh, God. He's actually as cringy as I think he's going to be. <laughs> you know, it's like, God, if, if I were to sit down and write what I thought Coach Marsh was going to say in the dressing room, it's like, this is basically, this, this is pretty much exactly what I would have probably come up with. Well, you know, he he, he led the group. Um, I, I don't know what he was saying at the end. It got it got a bit too blue. Got a bit too blue for the airway. Yeah, I think that's a bit much, isn't it? Well, you know, the vulgarity that he was using, you know, but I suppose that's maybe sometimes that's the way to, to motivate these players, you know, to say vulgar words, you know, it excites them, you know, um, to, to hear uh, to hear uh, taboos being um, being you know, sort of breached uh, in, in such a way. Um, but yeah, what I mean, the, the taboo of, of not invading the pitch and attacking defenseless opposing players is one that seems to have... Uh, Seems to have gone out in recent yeah. times. Yeah, yeah the it's city. just, um, it's bizarre, isn't it? Like, it's it's kind of one of the, like, it was inevitable yesterday as well. I mean, like, I didn't for one second think that the pitch wasn't going to get invaded last yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the goal thing was kind of funny, wasn't it? Like, because that, just the specific goal stuff wasn't, mm. like, was was this really famous incident was around 1980 when, uh, Scott, you know, they used to play the home nations matches, and one time a, a bunch of a particularly pissed Scottish crowd went mm. onto the field at Wembley and like broke the goalpost or something, broke the crossbar, yeah. and like, and this was like this was one of the great scandals, you know, <laughs> it's one, one of the great scandals of like British public life, you know, what have we become as a civilization, you know, these the, these um, barbarians from beyond Hadrian's Wall. Have come down and like sacked our capital and broken mm. our crossbar, uh, but like the city fans were just pulling. I don't know, just like in a mood of mindless destruction. And once the once the city players had escaped from from their own fans, and Robin Olsen, of course. I mean, you saw like the thing about the Olsen thing was just like what, like why why do people do this? Like okay, so Robin Olsen is okay, uh, you know he didn't he didn't get seriously hurt or whatever. But like why would people do this? Roy Keane. Uh, 
Roy Keane, Roy Keane knows what uh, what was happening. I think when COVID happened, play, people have come back after COVID and forgot how to behave themselves. Idiots, scumbags, disgrace. A, a player walking off a pitch and, and getting attacked. We've seen it during the week, obviously, a couple of times at Forest, St. Patrick Vieira. The club's absolutely disgraceful. Yeah, that's Keane. Uh, Keane, um, I mean, that kind of language has gone out of style. But, mm. but for someone who just attacks a visiting player you know someone who hits a hits a player in the back of the head in the middle of a pitch invasion like what other word really is is appropriate yeah it, it's just it's really really well really really quite scary and everyone keeps saying oh you know if something something serious could really happen like Billy Sharp did get like flying headbutted yeah. last, <clears throat> last week you know like it's something serious has already happened yeah. you know like they like I don't know what what we're waiting around for here you know the, the idea that like you know you're immediately you're looking at like possible punishments and stuff like that, uh, you know, points deductions or whatever coming in from next season or you know whatever. But it's also just more like, what? Why is this happening? You know, thinking rather than thinking about like how can we punish the the clubs yeah. in question, it's why like, is it actually the deeper so? question is actually just what is going on? Like, what is you know what um what public norms have been discarded in the the rush onto uh, onto these pitches? Yeah, know? I mean, I saw p- people, including Roy Keane and Diego Torres, suggested that the you know the the end of the repression of the pandemic has created a kind of uh, you know a kind of a reaction, um, uh, you know, against that. But like, yeah, I mean, and and I know other people are, have have mentioned cocaine and the fact that loads of fans are just you know beaked up or whatever. Um, which probably plays into it a bit, but I honestly think it's mainly just people acting up for their own cameras. Like, I really mm. think as though that I kind of feel as though that's the main thing they're doing. Like, just sort of like, was there see, anyone out there who wasn't actually filming? Oh, their, yeah, you know, everyone, yeah. everyone is doing it. And you know, I mean, obviously, people people film stuff. It's kind of if it if it's if it if you don't have film, like it, it's like it didn't happen or whatever. And you know, so I'm not kind of saying, oh, they should put their phones away and live in the moment or whatever. You know. But like I, I think that that's that they're sort of they're they're acting up to the to this audience. You know, they're kind of oh look, you know, let's do something mad here. This will this will be. I I think like that's the kind of main thing that's going on. I mean, obviously, you know, that's it's not like these things were only invented like uh, you know in the last in the last little while. I mean, there's a, there's a big element of, of imitation, like, like an epidemic quality to it as well. Mm. It's like, oh, this is what we do now, you know? Like the way that everyone started throwing beer in the air. You know, yeah. when, when a goal goes in in a, in a in a match or whatever and people are watching in an outdoor venue, right? And yeah. then, like, a, you know, in a mass, a mass spectator event. And now every time that happens, all these beers go up, all these, these you know, everyone throws their plastic yeah. glass of beer in the air, right? That used, that used to happen. <laughs> right, and the reason that it happens now is that it looks good on it, it, on video. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's the reason. So everyone, yeah. so people because uh, obviously sitting there getting drenched by your own beer. Yeah, especially your beer costs like exactly. For. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the beer is really like that, expensive. That is not an enjoyable experience for anyone. You're getting I mean, ripped even off. if your own beer, even if it if your own beer lands on your own head, leaving aside the annoyance that you're causing to everyone else around you, that's still not the most enjoyable experience in the world. No. Um, no, it's really not. Uh, what else is not the most enjoyable experience of the world? Getting injured just before the Champions League final. You know, I honestly, I, I feel as though um, for Liverpool, the most disappointing thing about the game yesterday is not that they didn't win the league. Because I think they probably had kind of accepted that Manchester City 
we're not going to mess it up against Aston Villa at home. Mm. You know, but notwithstanding the fact that with 15 minutes to go in the game, that it looked exa- as though exactly that was going to happen. But I don't think they really started that game expecting that they were going to finish as I mean, champions. I still, uh, yeah, I mean, I still think it's massively disappointing given how it panned out. But, I mean, from midday yesterday to midnight yesterday, nothing happened that necessarily would have shocked Liverpool. If you'd fallen asleep for those 12 hours, you wouldn't have been at all surprised at how the day panned out just results-wise. But the injury to Thiago is a total disaster for them. If I can once again, I know this should really be the Diego Torres news there, but I just have to bring you this. I just have to bring you this. James Milner is 36, replaced Thiago after the break. With the last game of the day tied 1-0 on the Premier title at stake, Klopp had no choice but to turn to the old Milner, a player who exhibits obvious difficulties moving around the field after years of scrapping. (laughs) <laughs> the old builder. A player on, who me. exhibits obvious difficulties moving around the field after years of scrapping. Does he not usually, still, even now, r- routinely finishes the guy who covers the most ground on the on the, the most meters? I mean, okay, he maybe maybe he's not the uh, the slinkiest. You're never going to mix mix up James Milner and Neymar, you know. Uh, at this point, well, I mean, I I wonder who's got lower body fat actually, Milner or Neymar at this point. I mean, that's you know, I was when I had name when I said Neymar, I was thinking Neymar a few years ago, um, but uh, losing Thiago and it seems as though maybe Thiago injured himself playing that pass to Mane to set up the equalizing mm. goal. That little sort of flick that was the moment at which he felt that felt something go and played on for a little while but seemed to be oh, I'm not sure I'm not sure and then came off and now it's like well he's probably not going to be available for the Champions League final and Fabinho is already um has already been injured and okay I think he's supposed to be back but it's not exactly the the you know the the best way to get up to speed for playing against Luka Modric is you know just to be injured for three weeks so uh suddenly um you know we're get, getting right to the just just as they sort of approach the very end of the last match of the season you wonder if they're sort of running out of gas a little bit uh you know i'm sure that that um mm. i mean the, the thing it's it's an interesting situation Liverpool are in here because obviously there's this you know while i say that they that it's not disappointing or, or it, that that what happened yesterday wouldn't wouldn't have been like the most crushing disappointment because it was kind of, you know, you could see it coming uh, from a long way off. Um, it is, you know, it must be grim for them to be in this position of kind of put posting these outstanding seasons and not not winning. You know, there's just sorry, it's just not quite enough. You know, you lost again, so. Um, quite what Jurgen Klopp or quite how Jurgen Klopp manages to keep this going um, it's going to be a test I think of his abilities you know Liverpool have now con- have now posted I think in the last five seasons three of the is it seven best performances of all time um, no even their 92 point season no club I don't think has ever got more points than that in the Premier League that wasn't a, like a Petro super club you know the, the only the only teams that have managed to get more than that are Chelsea uh, on two occasions, once under Mourinho and once under Conte, and Man City on three occasions uh, under Guardiola. So no uh, no non non Petro club has has managed to do this well. But you don't get any prizes. Maybe they can you know make a prize for that. So 
that's the uh, that's the situation. Um, uh, as regards to them, we, we're obviously going to be talking about them a bit later in the week because they're going to the Champions League final. When we'll also be able to talk a bit more about the the big story of uh, the weekend before the Premier League kicked off, which was Kylian Mbappe uh, jilting Real Madrid. <laughs> and honestly, on a different day, we would have spent 40 minutes talking about this. And don't mm. worry, we're going to get to this because jil- a jilting on this scale has, I assume, never happened in the history of Real Madrid. Like, I mean, I'm thinking about I'm just thinking about it. I mean, Neymar kind of flirted with them for a while before he joined Barcelona, but that was a, that was not a situation like this. You know, when they were trying to sign Neymar, I would say that was a bit more like when they signed Vinicius more recently. You know, oh here's this. You know, he's the, the next big thing out of Brazil. Whereas with Mbappe, they had been planning to sign Mbappe for for years. They had been like pruning the squad, reducing the wage bill putting money aside everything was getting ready for operation mbappe it was got it was literally that it was their upset their singular obsession for years was to bring the it's a bit like uh, the city you know with their multi-year plan to to hire guardiola you know mm. everything had been put in place for the arrival and now the last piece of the jigsaw is killing mbappe and oh my god he's going to stay with qatar oh my God. And now, like, they're they're threatening to sue, or like La Liga is suing. You know, I don't even know who you sue for this. You know, but they're gonna they're gonna sue somebody. You know, because this is a disgrace. What's happening? I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of suing going on. There's a lot mm. of suing going on in the Premier League, as we'll talk to now about Miguel and Jonathan. But like, what what a story! And like, it's like such the guy a disaster. in the helicopter uh, soaring high above the penultimate scene in Seven. Uh, when he just roars into the intercom, somebody call somebody. <laughs> somebody call somebody. I mean, how can you, like, this just does not happen to Real Madrid. And yet, here we are. It's it's happened. Mbappe WhatsApps. WhatsApps. Uh, Fiorentino Perez is like, yeah, just so you know, I'm like, she's going to stay in Paris. Yeah, yeah. So I just, oh God. I hope somebody releases a documentary about like the next hour that followed like just Paris's reaction to this you know the failure of his multi-year project to bring in Mbappe who I assume now will not play for Real Madrid because really it's hard to imagine a more brutal and bilious insult uh, to that great club than to uh, than to turn them turn them down in such shameful circumstances so yeah we'll talk a bit more about that because Real Madrid as we know are going to Paris the city of Kylian Mbappe to play uh, the Champions League final later this week so uh, we'll talk about that later in the week. We've got that bit better quality. We've just got to make it count. It might be a knob end. Is it too much to ask? In ninety first minute that wins it. So basically, like, the only chance you train. I don't know. Roy said something under his breath about Johnny or something. You're always on the team until never fair. Roy is Roy, isn't he? I'm sure there's lessons to be learned by everybody. And how him just going, Roy? I'm not speaking to you like this. Like you know, I'm not listening to you. When I got the sack at Sheffield United, the, the only guy that spoke to me was Roy Keane. I'll never forget that. And I thought that was a bit of class. We've got that bit better quality, and we just got to make it count. He called me. It might be a knob end in 91st minute that wins it. All right, Miguel, you were there. Martin Tyler said, you'll never see anything like this ever again. Um, and yet, you did. You did see something like that ever again. Tell me how it felt to be there, uh, pitch side, as Manchester City completed um, arguably the greatest comeback in the history of football. Uh, 
I'm not sure I got that far, given they're playing mid-table Villa and were capable of leaving on the bench the £100 million star that they signed off Villa hmm. in, in this summer. Well, no, no, no. Okay, listen. Look, look. This is, this is starting off on a, on a note which I can already sense. I can already sense my city fans ah, getting look. Tell me this, right? This is a, this is a specific football yeah. question. Um, three goals in five minutes. Right, this is something that you've written about before. Often, because City have been at the receiving end of this type of, you know, quick bar- salvos of goals. Um, what is happening in that moment? How does that game go from Manchester City can't kick snow off a rope and everybody's having a nervous breakdown to everything that Manchester City hit is flying into the net, and it's it's a, it seems miraculous that they that any move that they have doesn't end up in the back of Aston Villa's net. What is the transformation? The one thing I would say, I mean, for yeah, for all we discuss about what Manchester City are as a club, this was a game that did require them and Guardiola to dig in and show quite human and sporting qualities. I think always the the great thing about the final day and and why yesterday actually almost more than um than twenty twelve, it actually reminded me of the last day in ninety five for the way it kept like the, the action or the focus kept going between different stadiums, even as as as. I was even experiencing while I was at one of them because you couldn't you, you couldn't but listen in elsewhere, and because of that, I think that the final day more, more than even a cup final because it's about so much more than the the prize at stake in the day, the emotional psychology of it all influences what happens in the pitch so much more than at any other time, and it becomes about a mindset and emotional reaction. And that, I mean, you, you can kind of measure the whole day as regards that city like city started off pretty rousingly. With, a, with what was a raucous atmosphere, m- much more so than for the Real Madrid Champions League semi-final, uh, which is interesting in itself. Then, obviously, the, uh, Villa's goalkeeper Olsen starts badly. Very quickly, um, news comes through, Wolves score. And there was that real energy around the stadium. But once that didn't really go where, and Villa did defend well, it kind of transmitted into the... or it, Sorry, transformed into this gradual disquiet that then transmitted onto the pitch... There was this kind of interesting split-second moment on 24 minutes when, at the exact same time as Mane equalised for Liverpool, Foden puts one wide, or just just wide for City, which felt like kind of one of these, you know, again, this, one, one of these little uh, snapshots that starts to kind of influence the day. Villa sends something, they score. It, as, as you say, City, there was a period there where City were having a real meltdown. They, it, it was like 2012 in that regard. All, all it was missing was that was was Guardiola coming out and telling all his players to fuck off like Mancini? Uh, he didn't quite get to that, to be fair. <laughs> to his credit, um, but then it's, I suppose it's the, it's the weird psychology of these occasions as well. In that it did feel like, in in in, in classic fashion, and to repeat a cliche, it felt like the worst thing Villa could have done was actually score a second goal. Because I mean, and now to be fair, Guardiola did react as well straight after the goal. He brought on Gundogan. Well, I thought Gundogan was on just before the goal. It was, but they're both 69 minutes. Okay. Um, actually, it's, it's possible you're right there. But anyway, either either way, I suppose, he'd, he'd made the change at just that yeah. point. But as well as well as the kind of um, the, the changes to the team, it was like City was... Because the, the situation got so extreme, it was like they'd suddenly been a bit more released like that and there was more focus to their play. Um, and, and a little bit more... Because, okay, they, they had improved... They had basically put Villa under siege at the start of the second half. But, you know, there was, there was a real imprecision about it. The Bruyne was blazing shots over the bar. 
Jesus, who, who had a good game, put one over from just under. But then once that happened, and, and once they got that first goal, and Guardiola referenced this afterwards, it was just like, you, you, you could sense it, there was absolutely no doubt whatsoever they were going to get the second and the third, and got them, of course, in five minutes. And it was quite weird then, because even though most of the game had been such a kind of a nightmare for City and, and, and filled so, with so much anxiety and when for, for, let, let's be honest for the first time since what maybe November the title looked in any sort of doubt then there was still 15 minutes of play at the end where basically they were just waiting for the final whistle and again if you're a City fan obviously there's a lot of nerves there but um, but, but all, all that said that the period when it was 1-0 then 2 it, it was it was a pretty fascinating game uh, to watch and like and to experience. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really was. Um, you know, notwithstanding, okay, the results were as expected, but how uh, how we arrived at those results was uh, was pretty amazing. Jonathan, you were at Anfield, um, Bridesmaid Park. Uh, <laughs> it seems as though I, I don't know if Jurgen Klopp's points to titles ratio is ever going to be beaten in this league. I don't know if everyone's ever his ever, if anyone's ever going to take away his average points to league titles one ratio. Um, that's something he's got in his back pocket. Um, but uh, how how would you describe uh, the uh, the atmosphere um, as as the as, you know the events went on yesterday? Well, I mean, I think one of the great things when games are played simultaneously is that obviously the crowd is not entirely focused on the game they're watching. You know, at least some people in that crowd are monitoring what's happening in other games, and you know, particularly you know, obviously on the last day that 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 matters more. So that moment when the you know the the, the the roar goes up and it's a very sort of it, it starts off sort of quite you know the first bloke who's heard it on his radio has seen it on his phone or whatever his radio it, it, I was surprised by how many radios I saw uh, absolute I, I, retro like yeah. this was happening in 1995 I mean, when I say radios, of, I, I, of West Ham goals against Manchester United I might mean listening to the radio on the phone I, I guess okay, right. I guess maybe that's what I mean but like they are listening to radio coverage you can see the headphones in yeah yeah um and, and you know it, it sort of spreads out, but there's at the same time you can see people they they know that fake goals happen, and I, I guess particularly in the in the in the age of VAR, you sort of think, well, has it is is that is is this has the ball actually gone in, and is it actually going to count? Um, and, and even even when when City were three two up uh, after Liverpool had scored to go two one up, there was a, a huge roar that went right around the ground. Um, that, that you know there had been this 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 sort of fake goal. Uh, I mean, Jordan Henderson said afterwards that he the Liverpool players weren't particularly aware what, what was going on in the city. They they were sort of confused by the crowd noise. Well, you could see Mo Salah literally becoming aware of it in real time in the aftermath of his of his goal. Yeah, because he, he takes he takes off with a look in his face that says. I've just scored the goal that might win the league, and by the time he's finished the celebration, it's turned to total desolation. It's like, yeah, oh, he's, they're, they're he's realised that Son scored twice, and he's not going to get the golden boot. <laughs> uh, no, he did get. He actually he got the golden boot. That's uh, you know, uh, it was a nice try, Jonathan. But they shared the, they shared the golden boot just as they shared the golden glove. Listen, just on this technical point, um, is. Okay, someone tweets me today saying, um, basically saying, oh, you know, how can you say the the comeback was incredible when you know, you knew it was going to happen. And I said, well, I think that's a bit, a bit unfair. Like City hadn't actually come back from two goals down under Guardiola to win a game, which is, has to do mainly, I guess, with not going two goals down very often. Um, but still, you know, they, they sort of picked a good moment to, to end this this streak. 
Uh, but it turned out that he was talking, no, 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 I mean, comebacks generally. Like, they're happening, like, this is just like like, like what happened at Everton the other day. Or, you know, Real Madrid against City a couple of weeks. Like, I mean, it's it's kind of a commonplace now. And I wonder if you have the impression that this is, that this is for some reason more common now. And if so, is faking a head injury becoming one of the key defensive skills in the game? <laughs> I mean, literally, is there any... Is there any better way to stop this from happening than lying down and pointing to your head? Well, it was interesting, actually, just how frustrated. I mean, again, because it was a day with so many echoes of the past, in that sense. A lot of the first hour, say, actually reminded of Liverpool-Chelsea in 2014 because of the amount of time-wasting that Liverpool were doing. And it's interesting, of course, a few weeks ago, Kevin, you mentioned Lampard being influenced by that game because, of course, Gerrard played in it. And it felt it informed some of like Olsen was getting, I mean, before obviously the really unfortunate scenes after the game, he was really getting abuse off the crowd for the amount of time wasting he was doing. Mm. Um, so, and it, it does feel like that's because I think, and this is something we've touched on with the Champions League as well. And because in the in the last half decade, you know, the the the, the character of the Champions League has basically been chaos in contrast to basically most of European football history, which is highly accomplished sides knowing how to shut teams down. I think that is tied in to bigger issues, which is where football is. Uh, it's obviously in, in a world where sports science is most, more sophisticated, where kind of there's such a spread of ideas, teams are able to run faster for longer, and it suits the modern game to be able to press and run, rather than, and, and, and it can go for longer, rather than be able to basically sit tight. And that in a world where players are coached in a different way where they're more technical with the end product of all this basically in that games will naturally be more open more chaotic and it's just much much more difficult to just keep them tight in any sort of way i i, I do think that's a large part of it and that's maybe why i mean i'm not sure of the statistics and whether we see more comebacks but certainly it's absolutely true well i think goal averages have really shot up from about 2.5 2.6 to it was certainly in the Champions League. They've been over three for the for most of the last five years. Well, yeah. And so the cha- Champions League knockout phase up to two thousand, to the summer of two thousand eight, only once had the average been above three. Since two thousand eight, only once had it dipped below three. Now, I, th- I think that's slightly different dynamic to the Premier League. But I think I think the reason for that in the Champions League is partly because you now have the the super clubs who are so much bigger than everybody else that they don't have to do defending in the domestic leagues. They're not practiced at it. They're not tough. And so when they come up against each other, they they they, they just don't really have that that uh, defensive experience and wherewithal to draw on. And then you know the, the the more the more obvious form of that is when you have Villa v City. Villa, for all their spending, have a squad that's nowhere near as strong as City's, and therefore even if they can get ahead, you know that City's bench is much stronger, and you know that they can just keep going in a, in a way that that wouldn't have been possible twenty years ago. Yeah, you have to though be able to to waste time. I mean, this is like this is becoming a key survival skill. I mean, when the first goal goes in, just lie down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I, I was I was interested yesterday. Um, I mean, Wolves were very very keen to stop Liverpool winning that game. Um, mm. And so there was a moment when I think it was Willie Bolly went down on the goal line, and he could easily have sort of shuffled sort of six inches off the pitch. But Connor Cody, who I always see, I was just assumed was a Liverpool fan. I, I, maybe he's an Everton fan. I don't know. But he drags Bolly onto the pitch, and Bolly's sort of screaming in pain. 
he is a Liverpool fan, Conor Cody, I think. Yeah. So I, I, it, was, it was like you know, it was as if Conor Cody had to prove that no, I am gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shit house Liverpool out of this title to prove just how professional I am. But I, I actually, I, I, I was thinking about that yesterday, even in the in the kind of first hour of the game and even before it. Like, say, what, what does Gerard say to Villa to motivate him? Because Villa. There was one. I remember thinking of it in one moment, in the second half, where Jesus finally got free and turned had a shot, and Callum Chambers blocked it with the sort of like you know throwing your body in the line that you really only see in the last day. Again, reminiscent of West Ham '95 or McCluskey or whatever, just really putting everything in. And like I was thinking about how managers motivate teams for these sort of occasions, mm. given their own season. I mean, and obviously for Villa. Gerard appealing to his Liverpool history. No, I mean that's, it, that's an anti-motivation. You know, yeah, players aren't going to care about that. No. So I mean, I mean, obviously, as much as anything, I suppose it's that professional pride in not being someone else's patsies and not kind of just, you know, it, it being the team that lets someone achieve something, um, which is probably which is probably really what takes over in these. And and of course the the intensity of it all and the fact you are part of an occasion starting to have influence as well. But, but again, I suppose the, the flip side is whatever about when, when City got their first goal and it felt inevitable that he'd get another, a second and a third, after that you just knew, you know, in the words of a great man, Villa had done their money. Well, the great man being Richard Keyes, for anyone who, who didn't recognise that, that was, uh, I've done their money. No, I mean, he, um, I was thinking Richard Keyes. Now, you, you, when when um, the referee Michael Oliver blew up after what twenty six seconds, even though there'd been all this sort of time wasting during them, you sort of thought, yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't as though like, anything was going to happen. There's got to be no Coutinho thirty yards right there. No, not least because I think he'd already been substituted. Yeah, yeah. But, well, actually, but, uh, on that, Luke, I mean, obviously, I, you know, I didn't see the game live, and I'm only sort of looking at you know what what, what happened from the point of view of you know, knowing the results. But Coutinho, Coutinho went off with the score at 2 0, and uh, was it Marvellous Nakamba came on? Mm. It did. Yeah. I mean, I saw, I saw a leading Cameroonian journalist, NGN now, who, who I suspect is a Liverpool fan, saying that Jared had blood on his hands for that substitution. <laughs> uh, I mean, did that actually make a difference or not? No, I mean, I, no, I don't think so at all. It was just, I mean, I suppose one of the reasons I barely noticed Coutinho had gone off. At that point, you're kind of in the floor, you're right. And just because the whole dynamic of the game had completely shifted, City's anxiety, which, which, which Villa had exploited, had just, had just become this extreme focus on getting the job done now. And it was just, it, it just completely overwhelmed Villa by that point, which, which is how he scored, of course, scored three goals in five minutes. But even the, na- the nature of the goals as well. Um, especially the second one, or sorry, the third one, where suddenly then, you know, um, Sterling's able to get to the byline and for the first time in the game almost within a proper cross because there wasn't a body blocking him. Although a very, a very uncharacteristic um, goal for City, I thought the the, the first the, the first Gundogan goal. You know, in the sense that this is this was like a um, this was kind of a goal that City would score when Niall Quinn was playing for them. It's not a Pep Guardiola type of you know you don't often see a cross from that like a, a winger go to there and cross make that kind of cross for for a header at the back stick. I mean, I I, I can't remember too many goals like that under Guardiola. Yeah, I mean, it was probably a bit of an adaptation to the game as well because it did actually. I remember thinking this in the first half. It did feel that Villa were a little bit wise to the classic City cutback. And and Lucas Digne, who was putting in the game of his life, like you remember, one of the first big moments of the game was when because he were struggling for chances early on, 
And fine, I think it was G- Jesus cut the ball back for De Bruyne, De Bruyne yeah. for, what, for that classic City move. And there was Dinya just right in there. And, they, and City, throughout the game, they kept trying that and had absolutely no joy with it. Yeah. Can I ask you what you... Um, I mean, I think it's been a really good season overall. You know, I mean, it's, it's felt like a very kind of enjoyable Premier League season. The general health of the competition, though... Um, what do you think about the situation, for instance? Burnley are obviously the third team to get relegated. We saw that. Burnley um, now have to pay back a massive loan that uh, that was taken out by the, the people who took them over. That was one of the conditions. If they got relegated, they'd have to pay it back almost immediately. Like, I don't know if it's... if I don't know if we're going to be seeing Burnley again anytime soon, you know? But uh, if, 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 if you don't mind, if I just take, pick up on that one, particularly for Jonathan, because I'm sure he'll have similar sentiments, because... This is literally what I was writing late last night. I mean, it does feel that... That's what maybe explains some of my comments at the very start of this discussion, which, which, you, which you shut down. But, I mean, it, there is an element of yesterday masking some pretty uncomfortable truths for the Premier League, not least where it's going as a competition. Because a day like that, it feeds into this grand, seductive, glamorous idea that the Premier League is the most unpredictable in the world. That's how it makes so much money. That's where it is, where it is. Mm. But ultimately, we're still dependent on phenomenal overperformance by phenomenal overperformance yeah. by Liverpool to, to create yeah, the veneer of, of competition. Yeah, this is the third time in five years City have breached ninety points, which probably shouldn't be happening with that regularity if it's if it's a proper healthy competition. And as you say, sorry, is it, sorry, points. is it not the fourth time in five years they've done it, but the third time in five years Liverpool have done it? So they, got uh, they, had 80, they, they, they got 86 last season. And was that, that was the only so, time they haven't been over 90 points in this. And I, and I think in, when Liverpool won it, they got 82. Oh, sorry, that, so, sorry, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So they've both actually yeah. breached 90 points three times in five yeah. seasons. But, but, but then, of course, if, if, if Liverpool have an appointed a once-in-a-lifetime genius, uh, it's, it's basically five from five for City. So it's almost like that, there's that illusion of competitive almost because that's dependent on what is really quite a freak circumstance at Liverpool, and, and why I suppose everyone considers it so hard, it's historic. On top of that, we have the scene at the end of the game, Richard Masters, Premier League Chief Executive, handing over the trophy at the same time as his competition is investigating City for potential rule breaches. Right. At the other end of the country, Chelsea, a team, the, the last team other than City and Liverpool to, to, to win the title, remain under some threat of extinction still because of absolutely ludicrous laissez-faire rules over who can own clubs. You know, if you, if you put an example, put them in on, on Friday night, it's far, it's far, far, far harder to buy a bank in England than it is to buy a Premier League club. Mm. Um, then uh, tying in or feeding into that is the Burnley situation and, and, and exactly how after 17 years of the Glazers, a, a, a purchase like that was allowed when we where Burnley are facing huge difficulties at all. And of course, that should have as many questions about it as how the Newcastle takeover was allowed. And, and given, given what this season showed, particularly in terms of, of Chelsea and just how in an instant, the nature of Premier League ownership can make all these clubs subject to forces far beyond football where they're so lacking the protection. And yet despite all that, we still have the, the, the farce of the Newcastle takeover. And I wrote this in my piece today. But like, I mean, it's something I couldn't help thinking throughout the season. How will future football historians, given, say, the, some of the discussions we've had about, say, like, the 2018 World Cup, or, and, and, and I'm obviously not making d- direct comparisons, but um, 
how will future football historians look back on scenes where, uh, you know, Newcastle's owners were, were greeted with gushing adulation? I mean, and for this from a takeover where, where there should be the most kind of pressing questions about it, and which, which, which shouldn't have been allowed. And if you want to go even bigger, that given, given we're talking about Burnley, Newcastle, right, whatever about this debate about Eddie Howe, and, how, and he has done well, but it's still, he still did well on the back of investment that's never before been seen in January by any club in the bottom half. Now, there is an argument to be made that that, and, 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 and again, this, this, sort of, this sort of takeover that's helped foster this reality where the Premier League is almost can be a wild west of owners, mm. where you, you could argue that's basically denied another club their rightful place in the Premier League. But of course, <laughs> Burn, Burn, Burnley's main fixation at the moment isn't that. It's actually Everton. It's just just to add on another layer to this, um, <laughs> it's, it's complaining about Everton. For the, for the, like I mean, and again on top of all this, we we have we have this possibility. What's what City's response to winning a fourth title in five years? It's to go and sign one of the two best next best young players in the world. Yeah, um, oh, amazing, amazing. Like so, so, so I mean, I know people don't want to discuss, you know, after, after the the glory essay, but they, but this. The, these are concerns, and suddenly you're in a situation like look look at Italian football in the in the mid two thousands. You go from a situation where it's the best show on the planet, and then suddenly, in a in, in very short space of time, despite its huge financial wealth, they're suddenly asking questions about how it allowed a staleness again. And and like when you when you paint out, I think those details like that, you, you can see growing issues. Not not least for this idea that the Premier League is some super competitive, the the most uh, you know the most unpredictable league in the planet. A giant refereeing so, scandal, of course. You know, but uh, nobody, everyone knows that such a thing is impossible in the Premier League uh, with the incorruptible uh, officials they have there. Uh, Jonathan, um, oh, sorry, just just, just you know, on on Miguel's point there that yeah, you know, the, the twenty Premier League owners. So you had either oligarchs, you had foreign states, or American hedge funds, or. British tax exiles owning 17 of the 20 clubs. The other three, two were owned by professional gamblers, and one. The other was Norwich. And the other was Norwich. Uh, Norwich yeah. And the team. And yeah, what happened to Norwich? Yeah. And, and that's why I, you know, I felt a lot of the criticism Norwich got was so was so ludicrous this season. <laughs> not, yeah, they're, they're not a TV chef is not playing in the same financial league as as Saudi Arabia. As Saudi Arabia, yeah. Uh, and, and then the teams replacing them, you get another oligarch. You get um, Shahid Khan, and, and, you know, a, a Pakistani-American businessman. And then either Forrest or, or Huddersfield. So Forrest with a, a Greek tycoon. So again, overseas ownership. Or Huddersfield, um, who are owned by Dean Hoyle, who owns Card Factory. But I think had some kind of investment or sponsorship from Alisha Usmanov earlier in the season, which obviously had to stop. And, and Hoyle's put up for sale. So, you know... And I even thought this on Saturday. You know, I was I was one of the forty six thousand Sunderland fans at Wembley, mm. and you sort of say, oh, Congra- "Congratulations!" Oh, thank you very much. Uh, and you sort of all the scenes in Trafalgar Square on Friday night, and 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 everything around Wembley on, on Saturday. It was all brilliant. You sort of think, "Isn't it great to be part of this great community?" And then you think, "Well, how have we actually done this?" Oh, it's because we've got a Swiss billionaire. Yeah, you know, it's it's, mm. it's it's not community driven wealth. It's not sort of a, a local businessman made good. It all it all stinks. It's all kind of everybody's just waiting for for the next sort of billionaire to wander into town to, to suckle on the teat of. And obviously, these people are, are not 
are not driven by the same motivations as as the old school owners. You know, they're, they're not driven by by local pride. They're driven by trying to make a profit. Now, I'm not suggesting the situation in English football was particularly good. Sort of, yeah, before the Premier League, that clearly a lot of those owners uh, that we used to have, you know, the the uh, the, the gravel voiced haulage magnets and whatever. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> swindling their players and selling like uh, rotten meat to school meals and all this kind of stuff. And, and um, you know, leaving stadiums as death traps. I'm not suggesting that was good. No, but I don't know. It, it's. Uh, that was bad in a practical sense, whereas this feels bad in a, in a sort of moral sense. Well, I do wonder, you know, if, if, um, if <laughs> maybe this is a reach, I don't know. But are, are we looking at the eclipse of democracy here? You know, <laughs> ultimately, right? <laughs> ultimately, it doesn't work. You know, we can all see that. We can all see that now. And what, what everyone really wants is a benevolent uh, dictator, you know, a god emperor with infinite resources to sort of rule and preside over their tribe. Uh, you know, we've seen this. At, but I think that is exactly it, isn't it? That yeah, sort of, yeah. you, know, you think of the moment. So you think of you think of those scenes outside Stamford Bridge when the Super League collapsed and Chelsea fans on the street, and you sort of thought, "This is brilliant. This this is football's moment do of you, revolution." Do you hear the people sing? It, exactly. And then, yeah, you know, what? You know, a few months later, and Chelsea fans have the chance to sort of say, "You know what? We're, we don't want to go down the oligarchy again. We've had our 19 years of that. We've had our fun." We're now going to do this the right way. We're going to become a community asset. We're going to take a stake. It's not. They're kind of comparing billionaires and how much they're going to spend. You know, yeah. it's, there's been no no attempt to kind of get fan involvement on any board or anything. You know, it's and that that that's, that that's been the saddest thing I think for me this season. That the 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 how how fleeting that moment was when there did seem to be a revolutionary fervor among fans. And it, it's actually no. We just want the billionaire. We just want the cash. We just want to see big glamorous players and who cares where the money comes from but on that as well i mean like okay what, what what's one of the most destructive forces of a democracy basically the the amount of money that floods into um the political structure and, and how that distorts how democracy operates and not dissimilar to that look at what's happened at the top of the european game exactly in response to what jonathan is talking about there with the super league there was a huge opening for the super league but why has actually in in, in a really dispiriting way Football, European football actually gone down a different direction, but ultimately because of all these competing forces. And it can't even where, be regulated. That's the thing because these, yeah, these, yeah. these entities are so big and so rich, they they can yeah. they can just you know outbid you on lawyers and can spin these things out forever and, and, until you've got you know and, and the governing bodies can't govern because they don't have the resources to match that. Yeah, and, and but even but even in that sense, like I mean, w- one of the primary motivations over the last year for Chevron, and and this is this to be honest, this is where. Football actually needs a new generation of, of visionary leaders that can actually see where it's going. And I'm not, I'm not sure that really exists right now. But his, his, it was as if his primary concern after this, just from talking to people around the European game, even though all these superclubs for the first time in 40 years or longer, for the first time really since they've existed, the superclubs should have been chastened and they're in a position of weakness. And yet one of the kind of um, influencing factors with Sheffern were basically that he wanted to make, because ultimately these these super clubs are worth so much money to the game, he, he didn't just want to kind of obviously get them back on side or ensure they were still in European football. He wanted to get them to, to think in terms of UEFA first and are no longer thinking about Super Leagues. And what that means is basically exactly what we've happened where, they, where they've created this monster of a Champions League because they have, to, they have to see they can get these returns. On the other side then, of course, he's got Madrid, Juventus and Barcelona still actually pushing to try and create their, competi- their own competition. And then he has to get re-elected as well. But it almost feels like 
a lot of the constituents we could be appealing to and where we could be talking about some sort of uh, reformation of the European game, that becomes the least of the concerns because of everything going on above it. And yeah, it, it, the Super League should have been the moment to say stop and football to consider what I, but we just so quickly move on to the next thing, uh, which is now this really weird Champions League that's going to, you know, because even, even look, look at this say it's true. I mean, all right, the, the battle for top four on Sunday didn't really pan out as we expected. But well, it was already, it was already over, in fairness. I yeah, mean, yeah. yeah, Tottenham are but, never, never going to mess that one up. But, but, and some of that was really down to kind of Conte being a super manager, Artel and his team being really kind of too, too uh, young, essentially, and having that kind of fragility of youth. But at least there was kind of the possibility of it because it's about six clubs going into four, whatever about what happened to Manchester United. Whereas, it, I mean, already I've been told, say, Arsenal don't see it as that much of a concern, not just because of the progress they think they're making under Arteta, but they're going to spend big this summer because suddenly the fact that, like, and this is pretty likely, the Premier League will really have a top five for the next few years with the way things are going. Well, they're more willing to spend money this summer just just, just reinforcing uh, you know, existing gaps, the power of these clubs, even if they're, if they're tiered among themselves. And, and, and what, what sums up a, ma- a major issue with this um, and just how European football has got to the point where it is and how the Premier League as well is getting to the point it is. If you look at, say, this day last season, um, where it was basically a, a shootout between Chelsea and Leicester for the last Champions League place, because of the way Champions League prize money is constructed and space and 10 years performance, when Chelsea qualified, they were guaranteed a minimum, I think it was just under 30 million euro because of how long they've spent in the Champions League and all that. Had Leicester qualified, they were guaranteed just under 2 million euro. Now, how are we ever going to reach any point of competitive balance? How can this not get worse when these are the kind of structures that exist? How can anyone catch up? How can anyone outside the elite ever really compete? Well, I mean, or, Newcastle, or, Newcastle United um, can do it. Um, this is the only way to do but, it. But, and the, the really insidious thing about the, 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 the market pool, which is what Miguel's talking about, is that those changes were pushed through in the interregnum between Platini resigning and Chefferin being appointed. And that mm. was Romano Granielli drove that through. And it, it absolutely stinks. It's, it's, you know, that, that's, that's as near to a coup as European football's called. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, these um, Agnelli and uh, Rummenigge are representatives of what I guess we're going to call legacy clubs um, because we've got a brave new world now. I can see Swiss Ramble doing a thread today at Newcastle. Uh, he reckons that they can spend six hundred million on transfers. <laughs> he reckons they can spend six hundred million, say four top class players at one hundred and fifty million each, uh, while increasing the wage bill by sixty two million, with players paid three hundred grand a week, and still be below two hundred million pounds, which is the um, which is the wriggle room they've got under the Premier League's profitability and sustainability rules. So I think uh, I think there's going to be some money coming in from from Newcastle. I mean, that, that, that would hamper their ability to spend in the following season, so wouldn't it? That, that, that's they, they can't spend six hundred million a year. You don't need to spend six hundred million every year, though, do you? I mean, <laughs> you know, if you if you just the one six hundred million spent in the in the capable hands of Eddie Howe as well, <laughs> uh, you know. So good luck to Arsenal um, and all the other clubs who's going, who are going to be trying to uh, trying to compete with that. Um, yeah, and it has been it has been a great season. Can I ask you very quickly because there's one other thing I want to get to, but um, can you give me quickly your Premier League team of the season? Who's going to go first? Uh, you, uh, you, you just, why don't you go first, Jonathan? If you've got it, okay. Yeah, mine's a, it's a four three three. Alisson in goal, 
mm-hmm. Alexander-Arnold and Cancelo, the two full-backs, Diaz and Van Dijk, the two centre-backs, Rodri mm-hmm. at the back of midfield, De Bruyne and Bernardo flanking him, Salah on the right, Foden as a false nine, and Son on the left. Sorry, who was who your midfield again? Rodri, De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva. Oh, it's just Man City midf- Man City's yeah. midfield? Yeah, yeah. Rod, okay. And uh, and then up front, it's Foden, Foden as a, as a false Salah nine. and Son. Salah on the right and Son on the left, yeah. I mean, I... I Umdenard for a long time about well a long time three or four seconds about Mane uh, and went went for Foden in the end but it could have been Mane and and you really think Ruben Diaz is is uh, is team of the season material? Um, I think he's been a bit you know. Yeah, I, th- I think if, if fully fit, yeah. And Miguel, yeah, I tried to at least add a little bit of variety club where possible, although it was pretty difficult. I obviously didn't want to stretch it, so okay. I went with. Uh, Alisson in goal, uh, defence of uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold, uh, Virgil van Dijk, Mark Gwaihi, a lot of it was, I mean, actually was thinking about Romero from Spurs there, but went for Gwaihi, because mm-hmm. someone outside the big six and had as a big impact. Uh, Left-back Cancelo, uh, midfield then, um, De- or no, Rod- Rodri, sorry, I followed it, Hall over Declan Rice, uh, Kevin De Bruyne and Christian Eriksen behind uh, Son, Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah. Okay, uh, pretty similar teams. Um, uh, pretty similar teams. The last thing I want to ask you about is, I don't think we've ever sought your opinion on this before, Jonathan, for obvious reasons, but it's 20 years today since Saipan erupted into the global consciousness. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I want to ask Miguel, because he actually has, has unearthed relatively new information about this quite recently, which which doesn't happen very often these days. I saw, <laughs> I saw one of the... Um, was it Aidan Fitzmaurice writing the Irish Independent Day? Says that Alan Kelly's got a hard drive somewhere with a document, uh, which has well, well, I mean, he went and, and wrote down on his computer what he'd seen that day, and I, I, I hope saved and didn't lose the computer like I always do with my computers. Um, but uh, not much new information has come to light apart from what Miguel found. But Jonathan, very quickly, do you think uh, you know who was? Uh, are you a Roy Keane or a Mick McCarthy man? Uh, um, Two Sunderland managers. Two the managers. Uh, I know which one produced a team was more fun to watch. Um, which was Kane, definitely. Yeah, 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 by miles. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, um, there clearly was substance in what Keane was saying. Um, that I, I, I understand the frustration that that that. Uh, the, you know, the levels of training pitch and organisation, whatever, probably weren't what they should have been. Was that the right time to raise it? I, I'd suggest absolutely not. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, you know far more about this than I do. Uh, I just was amused. Yeah, but it's a, I always like it listening to uh, English people uh, trot out uh, half-educated opinions about well, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, actually, just just on that, because it's something I've, I've been fairly curious about as well. I mean, given. I actually ended up doing a thesis on the media coverage of um, this incident when I was when I did when I did a my a university degree in, in journalism. Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, I've been completely consumed by it. It was the big it, for Ireland dominate everything. I've always been curious as to just how much. Like I know we always bring up the example of how it was front page news in India and Pakistan, and at a time when they were um, they were they were on the brink of nuclear war, yeah. but. <laughs> I mean, for, for in that perspective, how much did the story actually? Do you? How big was it for people outside Ireland? Certainly in England, was it just was it all just dependent on Keen being Keen? No, it was big because obviously we knew the personalities involved, and, and, and 
I mean, yeah, you know, it, it, it happened at the same time as the Katarina Tsakovic spat. Yeah. Uh, with Slovenia. And it, it definitely was bigger than the Slovenian issue. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the Zakovic Katarnas, I absolutely think Katarnas was in the right. While I think Katarnas is a, a little bit of a dickhead at times, I think Zakovic was a bigger dickhead in that, that instance. Mm. I mean, yeah, I've, I've been writing this book on the Charltons. Um, and, and sort of, it occurred to me, yeah, a lot of research I was doing, sort of mid 90s stuff, that that split between. Um, part of the, the culture that's just sort of happy to kind of, oh, isn't it great we're in tournaments? Aren't we having a nice time? Look at this drinking and not punching anybody. Isn't this marvellous? That, 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 that conflict that this sort of seems to crop up you know, around the USA and, and, and afterwards between that and the people who, who sort of think, actually, we've got loads of good players here. We should be doing a bit better than this. We shouldn't just be sort of happy to be there. The, the, the sort of it's, you know, it's obviously an eruption of, of that tension, which it strikes me... Yeah, having having seen Ireland in in Poland particularly hasn't really gone away, hasn't really been resolved. That's uh, a it, universal it, tension, though. That's that's a, that's a universal tension in all groups. I think. No, you know, they, I, they, well, I, th- I think so. The, the, because diff- all, because no, all, all all groups depend for their cohesion on members of the group putting up with things. You know what I mean? And there's a balance to be struck between you know how much do I tolerate you know sort of you know things which i'm I, I don't agree with and and to what extent do i say no no this is bullshit I yeah but there's the, the specific yeah absolutely. okay in that sense yes but the specifics of it are i think um not unique to ireland but they're very characteristic of uh, a football nation of ireland stature that Eng- are you England's suggesting that well, what are you suggesting we, well, we England's, went to, england's we, disputes are different to that we went to we went we went to uh poland and what are you saying well, the, 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 the what season, is the charge? Um, eating eating that, meal. That, what sorry? Eating <laughs> sucking the Chinese meal. Sorry, it came into my head. I don't know what what, what exactly are you what exactly are you saying we were guilty of in twenty twelve? Oh, it's, it's not about guilt. Um, it's about two two opposing views of of you know whether you should go to a major tournament, get pissed, have a good time, and not really oh. care too much about the results. Surely it or was when, John Delaney doing that, not the players. I didn't say it was the players. I mean, I meant, I meant sort of the fans. Whether oh, well, the fan, well, you're saying the fans should should be well, take, well, take well, some kind of monastic uh, attitude. Well, uh, shouldn't be getting drunk at the. Well, I mean, that's just crazy. I mean, <laughs> no. But whether that is enough just to have the opportunity to go and get pissed in a foreign country and and revel in sort of being look at us being the happy drinkers, or yeah. whether there should be a bit of a oh, come on. I can't believe we're getting twatted by Croatia. They're not that good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, okay, I, okay. I, I think in the in the specifics of that, then team. I'd probably lean towards the latter. But then yeah. maybe that's just jealousy that two English people can't drink together on a phone square without chucking a chair at a policeman. Well, you know, uh, Miguel, I mentioned uh, that you had uncovered new information relating to Saipan. Just in case anyone hasn't already um, read your update on that, what what, actually, what happened? So literally, just as you mentioned, that when searching for it, I mean, because the, the nature of the season, I wrote that two months ago now, and I forget what I wrote last week. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but it was basically, so I interviewed... Um, People might actually remember um, Michael Clegg, who was one of kind of the United's Fergie's fledglings for a while, the next group after the class of 92, who, who was a really promising player, but unfortunately his career got curtailed by injury. But that led him to follow his father in getting into um, strength and conditioning, I don't, I don't think you would actually call it, he would call it power development. Uh, but I was speaking to his father, who worked with uh, Manchester United between 2000 and 2011. So sees the, the the rise and kind of uh, and dominance of Ronaldo, all that, but also had a particularly good relationship with Roy Keane. 
in fact, a, a keen, I think, credits him with a lot of his uh, physical transformation at, at that time, to the point that in around April 2002, Keane had been so impressed with Clegg's work with him and was so comfortable working with him. I think this, this is pretty keen itself, that he went to McCarthy and said, well, initially, as, as the way Clegg says it, he told me and has it in his book, um, the, 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 first of all, Keane goes to Clegg and says, I've got, I've got the quote here, actually, that Clegg gave me. I want you to come and train myself and some of the players I've talked to. We want your work with us because we feel it would be really good for the team to have somebody like you as a motivator too. We're a small unit. We can come out and really surprise people. I want you with me. I need you with me. And then as Clegg puts it to, put it to me, basically, Keane had this vision of Ireland being this crack small SAS unit that would be really kind of, you know, um, yeah. tightly called and able to spring and surprise people. Keane then, about six weeks before the tournament, went to McCarthy asking could he bring Clegg and the way Clegg tells it McCarthy just dismissed it out of hand not, not, don't know him he's not coming and that was that and that Keane was uh, was absolutely seething now obviously there's a lot there was a lot more going on there yeah. which informed what happened but it's difficult not to think it was one of those little things that built up especially given one of the issues obviously Keane would have been I suppose better with people he felt comfortable with around him and that was it was just one of these little things which he would have seen as needlessly um I can't believe or, this or ne- I can't believe this guy isn't letting me dictate who's on his staff. <laughs> <You know? laughs> why, why does nobody respect me in this in this setup? <laughs> what is your uh, you know but then, but then, but then if you if you have been the individual who's you know what ninety percent responsible for getting Ireland there you can <laughs> Well you know, what what is your um what's your considered take? Twenty years on. Uh, 20, I mean well I remember like so at that summer I was eighteen and I was extremely pro keen. Uh, now, twenty years on, like that's the way these things go. It kind of my opinion is now somewhere in the middle. Probably still, you know, again, you become sympathy, a sympathy centrist. With every, centrist yeah, well, sympathy with everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sympathy with everything Keen said. I think he was right, and also appreciation of the fact that. I mean, I, I was at the the Holland game at home, the Portugal at home, and uh, for me, actually, they're two of the greatest individual displays I've ever seen, particularly the one against Portugal when Ireland should have been battered 5-0 that day, and it was because of Keane they weren't. He was everywhere. That really was his peak. And yet, as a consequence of all that, it's impossible not to think, just fucking play. Like, (laughs) the World Cup, come on. Yeah, come on. Well, I'm with you there, Miguel, uh, I have to say. uh, But uh, I have to say thanks very much, guys, for uh, chatting to us about all that today. Miguel Delaney and Jonathan Wilson. Cheers, thanks very much. So, Feet asked that question. Pretty strange. Yeah, very disappointed, yeah, but there you go. What have I become? My sweetest friend. I mean, at the time I thought that you were completely in the right. Everyone I know. But now I think. She just played in, just played in. I'm surprised you're really asking that question. No, well, it doesn't matter really what you think. Yeah, you weren't there at the time. You weren't an international player. 
he had the frustrations I had. If I could start again, we've not played at the international level. A million miles away. And you hadn't been accused of taking an injury, so. I would keep myself. What you think doesn't really matter. I would find a way. Uh, okay, that's pretty much it, Ken. Uh, oh, oh, sorry, uh, I never actually asked you how your weekend went. Um, I know it wasn't all that hedonistic because you were messaging into our WhatsApp group about the celebration of football that was the Late Late Show on Friday night. What was this about, Anya? What, what was going on? <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, well, it was... Uh well, what the, who did the Irish Mayor report was there? <laughs> well, I, I, I have the, I have the. They were reporting breathlessly on the events. Tubbs, beside <laughs> <laughs> this paragraph started. Tubbs was joined by Ireland legends Niall Quinn, Shea Given, David O'Leary, and Bonnie Packer Bonnie to Packer. share their memories, <laughs> memories of the glory days of Irish football. So Bonnie Packer is Packy Bonner. <laughs> yes, Packy yes. Bonner, Bonnie Packer. Just yeah. absolutely unbelievable. Well, you know, it was it was like a hundred years of Irish football or whatever, a hundred years mm. of the FAI, and uh, yeah, there was you know Stephen Kenny was on and Vera Pau and you know Gavin Bazunu and yeah Michael I mean, D Michael D of course yeah you know that's the yeah but uh, you know I just, I just have Leo Varadkar's mocking words, um, just echoing you know mm. he said something like. Uh, I, you know, I remember during the pandemic, you know, nights in watching the Late Late Show, which I no longer have to do and no longer do. And I was like, yeah, I, every time I see it now, I just think of that. And mm. I feel like it's like an affront to your. Well, uh, like the, well I mean, it's, it's, it's only an affront to me if I'm sitting there watching it. Yes. I'm like, oh, right. OK, I wonder what he's. I wonder what oh, no, the failure doing. is entirely yours, Ken. You know, when you when you sit down to watch that, it's like, well, I've exhausted every I other option. There's life. Nothing, Here there's I am nothing else for me to life. do but to watch. The Late Late Show. Yeah. Of course, a lot of people enjoy The Late Late Show and the, the very best looks of them, Ken. We're not here to sit in judgment on The Late Late Show. No. I mean, it's you, it's you, the, fa- the failing is entirely with you, Ken. Yeah, I'm, um, the, I'm the Late Late Show viewer. Um, but yeah, that was... But listen, uh, if, you had, if you'd been in the pub now, Ken, you'd have missed Bonnie Packer. So, <laughs> <laughs> so just, just keep that in mind. Thank you very much for listening. Thank, and thank you, you, Ken. Kira. Thank you, Kira. Owen's back tomorrow and we'll chat to you then on The World Service. It's an special person for all of us. It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. It is not war and death and famine, it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that, it's to persuade us of the world outside of that. That's why sports is important. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 